0: Whole lot of talk. The interviews
1: that rock. Brought to you by Rock Antenna, Germany's number one rock radio station.
0: So you're playing at the 20th November in the barclay Barclaycard in Hamburg. Um, so can you can you explain me how the stage will look like?
1: Well, the stage is um, set up with a, a big video screen, which we use for <clears throat> the accompanying videos, which feature in not all of the music but much of the music and the video is sometimes relatively abstract content sometimes it's historical sometimes it's painting a painting a, a reference for the uh, the nature of the songs and the lyrics sometimes it's putting it in a temporal context in as much as you know we use uh, more kind of uh, sort of hippie elements i suppose that were part and parcel of Uh, the presentation of the day and the imagery of the day in regard to some of our earliest songs. Sometimes it's, um, it's more, you know, more literal and more, more to do with um, the um, bringing, bringing alive the, the lyrics in terms of visual references. I, I mean, I should explain that for me, it's quite a natural thing to do because most of the songs that I've ever written in my life have been from visual images and, Perhaps because I like many of my peers in the UK I went to art school I didn't go to music college I went to art college and and grew up with a, an appreciation of the painterly arts and 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 of in my case also photography since uh, childhood and so a lot of the a lot of the things that I write about I, I have in my head a, a central um image I mean usually it's a still image usually it's something that is uh, a particular character, a particular circumstance, uh, uh, um, could be a landscape or a cityscape. It's something in my head that that's what I focus on when I'm writing the lyrics, and and sometimes to an extent when I'm performing the music, I'm conjuring up that that visual image. So I've I've, I've worked that way for a long time, and it seems almost second nature to extend that to the. You know, for the benefit of the audience as well, to give them some visual references to what I'm singing about, and um, as I say, sometimes it's much more abstract, sometimes it's more literal. But that's about trying to keep it varied and and have some uh, theatrical variation and theatrical drama in the way that you present that stuff. So that's the the visual look of the stage. The um, the band are generally, apart from me, the you know, it's on either side of the stage rather than taking up the um, center of the stage and blocking the view of the video screen. Musically speaking, it is focusing mostly on the first, I suppose, 15, 16, 17 years of Jethro Tull. It, it features quite heavily the very early part of Jethro Tull, which is when many people got to know about Jethro Tull for the first time from the first, second, third, fourth albums. And, and I think even younger fans who come to that music today for the first time, you know, people who were not born until long after those songs were recorded, you know, that they will still gravitate to the earliest work, just as you can imagine. You know, some 16-year-old rock music fan in Brazil uh, discovers Led Zeppelin. Of course, they're going to go back to Led Zeppelin 1 and 2 and and see how the band evolved from those earliest years. That's part of the thrill of finding out about the history of that, that particular element of, of of music so, I think for everybody young and old it's um celebrating 50 years of Jethro Tull can't be about trying to cover the whole 50 years you know we'd be on stage for four or five hours if we tried to do that and in 2 hours we can't even can't even feature one song from each album for example there's still not enough time to do that so i have to have to kind of focus it in a little bit and in this in this case i think i'm choosing music which is mostly the music which i think uh, will be the the music that the, the 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 audience will remember as being their introduction to jethro tell's work um so that's really what i'm doing this year next year it's a little different in as much as next year's concerts are more to do with musical style and and cover music uh right up to the present day next year <laughs> i have to get this this year out of the way first
0: so, what do you expect from your concert in Hamburg?
1: I never have, I never expect anything at all. I, I, I've learnt um, many years ago that having expectations, whether you're the musical performer or whether you're the audience, is probably not a good idea. It's best just to sit down and let it let it evolve. Um, or, in my case, not sit down but run around the stage and see how it evolves. But you know, my, my expectations are simply hopefully enjoying the. Um, the physicality and the mental exertion of doing a concert it is a bit like going to the gym to work out you know physically it 's two hours of aerobics on stage for me being a flute player and a singer and plus, I suppose mentally you know you really are forced to to make your brain work it 's a lot to remember uh, in a concert in terms of the thousands of notes that I play and the hundreds or even I suppose thousands of words of lyrics that I sing. So it's it's a lot of um a lot of mental focus. I, I think it's really a good thing to do that and luckily I have the kind of job where no one's going to um force me to retire until I'm ready and I will be ready when when I'm no longer able physically or mentally to, to do it. But at the moment things look pretty good and um my uh resources uh, still seem Uh, more than adequate for doing what I do. So I hopefully, you know, have a few years ahead of me yet before I die with my boots on. And, and preferably in the encore, not in the first song. If I snuff it on stage in the first song, people are going to get pissed off and ask for their money back. If I get as far as the encore, they'll probably grumble a bit, but go home um, reasonably satisfied.
0: But I mean, if you're dead, so nobody or you wouldn't care. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I do
1: care. I mean, I care about lots of things. I care about the, the 10,000 trees that I'm going to be planting um, in the next growing season, because I won't see them grow to more than a a couple of meters high. I care about them because long after I'm dead, there will be some mighty oak trees um, growing where at the moment it's just some bit of grass. And so I of course, I care about all those things. I care about the world that we're leaving to our great grandchildren in the context of um, what seems absolutely inescapable and probably unavoidable climate change and uh, i care about the fact that there are some leaders of countries if we if we accord them that uh, that title who in my view should be uh, you know tried in the international courts for crimes against humanity and I'm talking Donald Trump. I'm talking about Bolsonaro in Brazil. I'm talking about about the Prime Minister of, of Australia, who, you know, just, again, is one of these climate change deniers who is hell-bent on opening even more coal fields and increasing the, the Australian um, uh, domestic use of fossil fuels. I mean, th- this is... It's almost unbelievable, especially on a day like today when there are some 5,000 climate change events going on around the world, that there are these evil men, and that's the only way to describe them, who for their own selfish reasons, much have to do with political power and being re-elected by voters who um, they... Tend to encourage uh, to believe that uh, climate change is just nonsense, or at best unproven. And of course, it's long since been proven. Um, you know, there, there are these things. Of course, you care about the world you leave behind you when you die. And if you don't, then you fall into the same category as the Trumps of this world, who don't give a shit what happens to his grandchildren, and he certainly doesn't give a shit what happens to yours. And and you know, with climate change, it is a climate change apartheid. It's those who can. Uh, who can be the uh, the survivors because they are privileged and those who are not privileged will be the people facing extinction um because it is that bad it's um so you know we we don't see climate change e- evenly affecting humanity across the planet it will be geographically focused particularly on continents like Africa and it will be focused economically on those who are are the less privileged who are going to succumb because they can't buy their way out of trouble and to some extent those of the trump dynasty will buy themselves out of trouble um even even you know my own children and grandchildren may buy themselves out of trouble um but that's not the way that it should be so yes of course i care what happens after i after i fall down dead on the stage during the encore <laughs> <laughs>
0: So today is for instance in Hamburg a Friday for Future demonstration. Um what do you think about this Demo- yeah about the demonstration Friday for Future?
1: Well I, I think with any demonstration you always have to weigh up the the good with the bad and demonstrations inevitably cause a lot of di- um a lot of um disruption for some people in society and uh, if you take it to the extremes like Those who want to fly drones at uh, Britain's most busy airport with a view to disrupting illegally and dangerously aviation traffic in order to make their point, then I think that's going too far. If you blockade a few streets in London, I think that's kind of excusable, but it will piss off a lot of folks who can't get to work or taxi drivers and delivery men who can't get around town. But, you know, I think. There are some things that are acceptable in terms of demonstration and some things where, in a sense, it goes, uh, it goes too far and alienates many of the people that uh, the demonstrators are trying to reach and persuade to their point of view. So demonstrations can be counterproductive in that regard. It's, um, you've got to be very careful how, how you manage it, just like the prime minister of Luxembourg probably regrets i don't know this for a fact because he denies that he regrets it but i think he probably does regret having uh having done a press conference pointedly without our so-called leader who uh felt unable to to do uh, to do a press conference because of demonstrators just a couple of hundred of them shouting him down and so you know in a situation like that you have to be Aware that what you do may have the opposite effect, and that indeed had the opposite effect here in the UK. In as much as far from uh, uh, blaming Boris Johnson for not showing up for the press conference, they they took the opposite tack. Even people who do not support Boris Johnson felt that this was a setup, that it was a, a very deliberate way of making a point, and, and it, it had the opposite effect. It turned people even more uh, against. The bureaucracy of Europe. So you've always got to weigh up the good and the bad, and the plus and the minus. If I go to perform in Israel, I have to weigh up the plus elements against the negative ones, and and I have to weigh that up on a personal and and ethical, moral level. And if I feel that by going there, I can leave something positive behind that outweighs the um, the elements of uh, performing to a, a predominantly middle class audience of mainly. Uh, Jewish ethnicity, then um, I will do it. I will go there. But I don't personally profit from it. I, I leave the money whenever I play in Israel. I, I donate the money to uh, charitable causes, which are, are very carefully picked by me to be those that I feel are, are helping to build bridges in Israel between um, between the left and the right, between the, the Arab and Christian and Jewish communities. I weigh it up. I make my choice. And if I think my choice is more good than bad, then I'm going to go. And if people shout me down and accuse me of um, somehow uh, being pro-Israel and against uh, Arabs or Palestinians, then they're not really understanding the full nature of what I do. So, you know, life is like that. You know, nothing is usually nothing as simple as you want it to be.
0: You're playing 50 years now, uh, or 51 years, I think, but it's the 50th univer- uh, anniversary. So what did change in this time uh, politi- in a political way?
1: Well, I was uh, in many ways fortunate to come into my professional period of life at a time when there were really radical changes culturally, politically, throughout the world, but very much focused to begin with on the Americas and um, or North America and, uh, and Europe. In the wake of World War II, there were obviously momentous changes and a, a very brave, bold, and an experiment for which I'm personally hugely grateful, which resulted in the EU as we know it today. And um, I think of myself very much as a European in, in the spirit of, of being part of a post-war Europe which which we as british played a very prominent part in in terms of what uh, how it evolved and how it resolved so you know britain is inextricably bound up with with europe in terms of our more recent history so i feel very european i feel very much that I, i'm fortunate in having been part of that generation that took its place in uh, in that world where things were changing politically socially culturally that the relative emancipation of minority groups began really in the '60s, and following the uh, the uh, race riots in Alabama in the um, in the '60s, there there was a momentous change. It wasn't fast enough for most people. It wasn't complete enough for most people. It it still isn't complete today. But relatively speaking, there was a sea change. There was a big, big. Change a big movement that that began to bring attention worldwide to a problem that uh, was perhaps most manifest in North America and in uh, and in um, and in South Africa as far as publicity was concerned. But you know, we in Britain, for example, we have a long history of playing host to people from other places wearing different headgear and different colors of skin and following different cultural and religious uh, standards. So, you know, I, I, for us, I suppose it began in a major way in modern times. It began in a major way following the partition of India in 1947, when uh, we became the uh, the desirable destination of tens of thousands of, of uh, Pakistanis, of East and West Pakistan, of course. Um, East Pakistan these days is Bangladesh. Uh, and, of course, uh, Indians as well, who were split uh, in the partition of India, according to Hindu and Muslim background. But, uh, you know, we we suddenly were finding all these people coming in. We had a lot of people from elsewhere in Asia. And, of course, we had a huge influx of people from the West Indies. Uh, These were the ex-colonies of Britain, and quite rightly, we, we took in those who wanted to come, who could come, and you know, I think rather more than any other European country, possibly, you know, Britain can can say, well, you know, we we were actually pretty welcoming on the whole to folks who wanted to become resident and could play a useful and meaningful part in our growing society. Um, you know, I think I think we we probably have a better track record than than anybody else in Europe. Um It uh, wasn't something that everybody liked all the time, but nonetheless, I don't think anybody can conceivably deny that, that, for instance, the Bangladeshi community in Britain brought with it uh, huge benefits to the to the public. Whether it was taking on running the little corner shop that otherwise would have uh, become extinct in the um, in the face of growing multi supermarkets, you know, the multinational and. And um, big supermarket chains—they they kept the corner shops open, and they still do to this day. No, no British people didn't want to work all hours until midnight or even twenty-four hours a day. Bangladeshis, on the other hand, did. They put began to fulfill a a unique contribution to British society, along with, of course, all the culinary essence of Indian and Bangladeshi cuisine, without which uh, Britain would not be Britain today. So, you know, we we, we saw all of these things happening and unfolding um, in front of our eyes, and uh, the, the greater freedoms, the greater equality that women began to enjoy in society. I was there when all that was happening, in the, particularly in the periods of um, the latter part of the 60s through the end of the 70s. It was a momentous period of change in, in arts and entertainment as well as, as in um, in the more practical side of society. So, of course, these things were things that you could draw upon in writing music, writing songs, making movies, writing books, whatever you were doing, just as what you were doing as a, as a creator of music or literature or, or theater or drama, whether it was music music or live theater, it also, it began to change society too. So it was a very symbiotic relationship between the world of arts and entertainment and changing society as we saw it in in those, um, you know, in that decade or decade and a half, you know, very much in the thick of it, us musician types. It was a little later to come to other countries of Europe and elsewhere in the world. So whilst it might have begun in the mid 60s in North America and in the UK and Northwestern Europe, it was a little slower to happen. Uh, in uh, South American countries where the uh, it persisted well into the 70s and even into the 80s that things were what we would refer to as fascist regimes, uh, certainly dictatorial regimes. Uh, even Pinochet's uh, world was, was dotted with a lot of terrible, terrible things, just as, of course, same things were happening in Romania, same things happening much of Eastern Europe. And I think, you know, we, we, we must never forget these lessons where people were able to exercise extreme or absolute levels of power back in the period of the 60s and 70s and 80s. And suddenly with the uh, the post-Gorbachev years, there seemed to be a relaxation. But we have to remember now that we are looking at those extremely and obscenely powerful individuals who do not want to let go of the reins um, and we have to live in a world where Putin exercises uh, uh, a dictatorial level of control over Russia, um, just as Viktor Orban does in Hungary. And uh, you can look at many countries of Europe and hope and pray that the uh, extreme right-wing movements do not uh, become as pervasive as we fear they might. the the, uh, the lessons of history must never be forgotten. And that's the whole essence of what the... The European community was and should continue to be about. I, I say this as someone living in a land who uh, seems hell bent, or at least 52% of us, just a little over half of us, feel that uh, we do not want to be, practically speaking, part of uh, the European community anymore. And that's a very sad situation to see and one which. Um, I'm afraid, is unlikely to be re- resolved in favor of the 48% of people who voted to remain. I suspect that it's rather more than that now. And if there was a second referendum, you know, it would be pretty pretty conclusive that we were going to remain part of Europe. But before we can do anything, we have to revoke Article 50. We do not have time. And there is not the will, except from one political party, to revoke Article 50, Um, merely potentially to ask for an extension, which the EU may decide or not decide to offer. So time is running out, and it's in three and a half years we have not managed to resolve the mess of Brexit. Uh, For me, it's time for, first of all, revoke Article 50, buy some time, and uh, have a second referendum and a general election, and decide where to go from there. But in the meantime, let's not burn the boats once we're out of Europe. We won't get back in again within a five-year period, for sure. I
0: wanted to ask about rock and roll again. Yeah. Yeah. So about your concert in Hamburg, because what is so special about the show?
1: Well, in some ways, uh, everything is special about not only Jethro Tull, but the many different acts who have brought something original and, at the time, perhaps new to the, uh, to the table, the, to the feast, which is uh, musical entertainment. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I mean, bottom line is nothing particularly different, really. I mean, generic rock and roll or rock music, as we prefer to call it, it's, uh, nothing really fundamentally changes very much. I, I'm, I made a deliberate effort to listen to several pieces of uh, performance by Ed Sheeran the other day, you know i'd sort of vaguely heard a couple of songs and didn't you know think too much about it but i thought i'm going to really listen to this guy and see what he does and at the end of it my opinion had not really fundamentally changed i thought well i've heard all this before all the little all the little vocal ornamentations his general um, subject material which is basically largely you know singing about himself and emotional entanglements it's, it's 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 I mean, I've heard it all before. It's it's not to say that there's nothing, there's anything wrong with it. It's just reinventing the wheel. You know, it's for for a, a young generation of people who want the singer songwriter guy who walks out onto a stage with strums a guitar with a few electronic effects. You know, well for them it's new. For me, seen it. Been there, done it. It's just, it's just more of, you know. I find myself drawn back to, you know, preferring to listen to Roy Harper or Paul Simon or any of the other singer-songwriters who strummed a guitar and, in in a sense, broke really new ground because that was back then, you know, from the days of Bob Dylan onwards, that was something at that point, that was really quite new, at least for white men to get on a stage and do that. Um, but for me, you know, it, the wheel just keeps going round and round. And uh, uh, that's the nature of the music. So I, I don't really feel it would be right for me to claim that what I do is profoundly different from anybody else. But part of me says, well, yeah, we are a bit different. You know, we are amongst those groups who've Put their own spin on things, and particularly at a time when music was evolving and developing in terms of what would pass for rock music. Then I feel the music of Jethro Tull fits that uh, category of being, um, you know, a bit more restless and a bit more inventive. Not just sitting back and doing the same thing all the time. You know, with each successive album, there was always, and, and even in, in the last ten years, there's been always a new angle, a new, a new, uh, a new plot to uh, develop how did you came up to use flute but most of my peers you know we all wanted to be guitar players and and i too began as a teenager playing a guitar and learning to play a little bit of i suppose you know middle-class white men's blues and then i think at the age of about 18 or maybe yeah about 18 i think when i heard eric clapton who had then joined john mayles blues breakers and and i realized this guy was so far ahead of of what i could do and then a little more diligent analysis of the music scene unveiled people like Jeff Beck and Richie Blackmore and Jimmy Page and the other hotshot guitarists down in London. And I thought it's time for me to um, accept that, you know, for me to try and catch up with their standard of playing would take another two or three years uh, at at the very least and i didn't have 2 or 3 years i was already 18 19 years old i had to figure out something that would be uh, you know something that eric clapton couldn't do and as far as i knew he didn't he didn't play the flute so i thought well that's a fair enough reason to uh, pick up this shiny interesting Swiss watch of musical instruments in terms of delicate engineering, and see if I could somehow integrate it into the world of blues and rock music. And and actually, for the first four months that I owned a flute, I couldn't get a note out of the damn thing. I I just couldn't 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 make a note. I couldn't get a a, a note. And then suddenly somebody said, "Was well, a bit like blowing across the top of a beer bottle." You know, that's what you do. And then you suddenly it resonates and you get a sound. And with that bit of advice wow, I managed to play the note of G. And then I put my other first finger of the right hand down and I got a note of F. And then I found above that a note of A. And 10 minutes later, I had the pentatonic scale and I could play the blues. And then I could improvise. <laughs> there was this eureka moment. Where one day I couldn't play the flute. The next I was um, taking it into a rehearsal and we were learning new music and within three or four weeks, I was playing the flute at the Marquee Club and people were sitting up and taking notice because it wasn't the instrument they expected to hear in the context of an electric blues band.
0: I used to play uh, the flute as well, but it didn't work out. So uh, maybe this was a great tip.
1: Yeah, (laughs) somehow it just, um, you know, that moment comes and it feels right. But, um, you know, my, my my way to try and make the flute work in the context of electric music wasn't to learn to play properly. I never had a flute lesson. I you know, I couldn't, produ- I couldn't produce a good, clear, elegant quality of sound. I, I found I could get the notes more easily if I sang them at the same time as I played them. And so I used that vocalizing technique, which is I, you know, I used to do that when I played guitar solos. I used to sing the guitar solos into the microphone as I played the guitar. So for me, it was a very natural thing to do that on the flute. And it gave me more volume, more aggressive, more, uh, more of a strident quality that um, allowed the flute to compete with the electric guitar in terms of its um, uh, attention-grabbing nature when you put it into a musical arrangement. So that, that's how I evolved as a flute player. But my advice to young flute players, don't do what I do. You know, do what your music teach tells you um, because there's plenty of time to, you know, develop later but you should probably start off by doing what it says in the rule book and learning to play correctly and nicely and then you can Maybe a few months later you can start to fool around a little bit, but um, I meet too many flute players who 've never fooled around at all, and all they can play is classical music from the music that 's put in front of them they can 't memorize it they can 't play it from the ear they can 't play it from the heart. they just play from the written score and i can 't do that, so I have great admiration for them, but at the same time, I think you know for some flute player aged seventy or eighty, you know james Galway, for example who can't improvise. Um, he does memorize music because, as a soloist, he has to play flute concertos from memory. But basically, there are so many flute players who've never been able to play um, from ear and from the heart. They, without the music, they are lost, and um, that always makes me a bit sad that they've missed something so precious and important in their musical lives that it's now too late for them to uh, too late for them to acquire. Late in life although to be fair James Galway did last time I saw him he said he was taking flute lessons in jazz improvisation which at the at the age of 78 or whatever he is now it um, is a very brave thing to be doing yeah thank you very much all right take care thanks yeah
0: bye whole lot of talk the interviews that rock subscribe to our channel for more rockin podcasts.